Right. Well, good morning, everyone. And that was a fun game. Thank you, Madonna. Either we are world-renowned in our Bible knowledge or we're really good with our phones. Okay, so take your pick. Well, uh, I, I looked around and I saw a lot, of, you know, a, lot of, a lot of movement with the phones. So today is a special, special, special day in uh, the book of Ezra. And we're going to go through a few chapters actually together. Um, and before we do that, I do want to kind of recap where we are in the book of Ezra. And what we've discussed so far um, is kind of like a story or like a spiritual journey, so to speak, of a people of God who found themselves in exile. Um, so if you were, are kind of just joining us here in week three, um, the first week was all about kind of the work of God. Okay, what we saw, like what was the, the work of God. Um, and as you guys just said, um, what we saw in that first week is that God created a miracle for them to return home through Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, and that was like unfathomable for the people. They wouldn't have thought of that. They wouldn't have predicted that. It was like completely an unknown that the people of God would somehow return home from exile through a Persian king. Okay, they never would have imagined that. They could have thought, you know, Joshua maybe, like a, like a Joshua-like figure would come and help them defeat the Persians. Maybe the Messiah himself will come and rescue them. But they never would have imagined that God would stir up the heart of a Persian king to allow them to return home. And if you remember our first lesson in that first week um, was that God never forsakes us even when we forsake him. God never forsakes us even when we forsake him. And the reason is simple. The people of God didn't find their, themselves in exile by accident. Sometimes we read the stories and we think the people of God found themselves in exile by accident, but that's not true. What we see over and over again is when they are uh, kind of taken over or they're in exile, it's because they lost their way. They lost their relationship with God. So God is the one, in spite of that, who initiates the return, okay? Um, God doesn't sit there idly. God pursues them and follows them to bring them back home. And that's the same thing with us. What we talked about is no matter where we are in our relationship with God, God is always pursuing us and chasing after us, making sure that we come back home to him. And then last week, we saw the people's response to that great love and compassion. Okay, so last week we saw an amazing response. If you wanted to kind of summarize the response, and that was in chapter 3, the response of the people, if you wanted to summarize it, it was just sheer excitement. The people were so excited. They were so grateful for what God had done for them. And because of that, they go back home, and not just go back home, but they return with the idea and the mission of we're going to build the temple of God. And if you remember last week, they, they wanted to reestablish that connection with God so desperately, and they gave us the blueprint of how to do that. If you remember last week, this was kind of our key thought, is no more fear. They didn't let the fear of people trying to scare them from the outside get to them, right? All the spiritual warfare, all the crazy thoughts, they didn't let any of that get in their way. They said, no more waiting. We're not going to wait for the perfect time. Sometimes we think we have to wait for the perfect time to approach God. And they said, no, we don't. In fact, they set up an altar to serve God and to worship God, to commune with God, in spite of the, the, the temple foundation had not yet been laid, as the author um, tells us. No more isolation. They said, yeah, we know we're exiles, but we're not going to live, we're not going to come here in Jerusalem or go back home and just live in exile, live on our own. We're going to gather together as a community, as the people of God together. And it taught us the importance of like being part of the body of Christ. And finally, no more comparison. If you remember last week, the end of chapter 3 ended kind of abruptly. There were two groups of people. People who complained or people who wept about what was happening and then people who rejoiced. And there was confusion in the air. And the difference between the two, the difference between the people who wept and the people who rejoiced was comparison. The, the old, it says, says, says that the old priests or the Levites, the, the doom and gloom guys, okay, the old priests, what they were concerned about was 
this temple is nothing like the temple of Solomon. This is not like what God did before. This is not, we, we, if we compare this, this is actually kind of embarrassing. But then the other people said, we were just in exile three seconds ago, and God had done a great miracle for us. We should rejoice. We should be thankful. And that was the lesson for us, is that if we truly want to be grateful and thankful, we don't need to look at the past. We don't need to look at the future. But we need to look at what God is doing in our lives right now. So if you wanted to summarize last week, it kind of ended up on a high. Okay, so we started. They're in exile. God returns them home. People of God, they built the altar. The foundation is laid. It's completed. Thank God. Everyone is happy. And you would think the hardest part of this story is kind of done with. Okay, so like the hardest part, they're, they're kind of like at a spiritual high, so to speak, right now. So you'd think everything else is going to just be kind of second nature. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 4 in the book of Ezra. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Seems like a strange response. Seems kind of harsh. Like, imagine in your mind, you have this huge project. This is, an, this is a huge project. We're going to build the temple of God. And people come to you and say, hey, we want to help. And like, you have no part in this project. Seems kind of strange. Why is it that they refuse this help? Like, on the surface, it seems like, yeah, more people equals temple of God being built quicker. This is logical. Why refuse the help? If you're listening to the verse first, who are these people? The enemies. What's interesting about this verse and about this passage is that we learn that it wasn't just one person who refused the help, but it says Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel. Meaning what? There was something more to it than just people wanting to help, okay? And if when we actually uh, read kind of what scholars have to say about who these people were, um, they tell us that these were a group of people that actually worshipped many gods, okay, including the God of Israel. And some people would, Id would identify them as the ancient Samaritans, okay? Um, so because of that, in their minds, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel said, if these guys come in, they're going to sabotage this whole project. They're not going to just come in just wanting to help out of the blue when they're our enemies. They had a hunch that their offer wasn't real, that their offer was kind of like they gave that offer so that they can go in from the inside and kind of ruin the project. First lesson for us in this journey of temple building that we've been talking about this entire time. When we are tempted sometimes to take the easy road or like the easy route or a shortcut like they were tempted today, in our minds, it gets us to where we want to go to faster. But in their minds, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel, what they understood is something very simple. A shortcut is not there to get you to where you want to quicker. It's actually the longest road to your desired destination or the longest path to your desired destination. Adding more people to your project, in theory, is a good thing for these guys. But they knew that wasn't, there was something else beneath the surface. They knew it actually served the exact opposite um, goal. Short-term satisfaction. 
or shortcuts in our lives will often not lead us to long-term success. And if we can discern, like if we, if we can get this truth down, we can discern between a lot of right and wrongs in our lives. Like taking those shortcuts, those easy, that, that easy way out. The devil will always want us to, to compromise. Okay? He'll always want us to kind of see if we can, yeah, I know you want to be with God, but maybe there's an easier way to do it than what you're doing right now. This actually goes back to the story of Adam and Eve. If you guys remember the story of Adam and Eve, what he told them was what? No, 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 you're not going to die if you eat of the fruit. You're surely not going to die. Actually, it's to your advantage that you eat the fruit. Because if you eat the fruit, what's going to happen is, instead of dying, you're actually going to become more and more like God. You're going to gain an advantage. The devil does the same exact thing with us today. He will make us think that a certain thought or a certain way of his is going to get us to where we want to quicker, but it actually does the exact opposite. I thought of a few examples here of, of shortcuts in our lives of how the devil wants us to do that. An easy example is your jobs, your careers. You know, God says, this is how you behave at work. God says, integrity. God says, faithfulness. You're like, but if I do this, I'm never going to get ahead. Look at everyone else around me. That's not how life and, and the work, that's not how it works. Take the shortcut. Yeah, you can still worship God, you can still do what, like, but that's not how life works. That's so naive. Another shortcut. You don't really need to go to church to have a relationship with God. This is one that I, that I hear often. You don't really need to go to church to have a relationship with God, right? Like, why go to church? You can have a relationship with God at home. Or my favorite, the one that I hear and the one I really see a lot. You can live your life a certain way on Friday night, Saturday night, and then come join God on Sunday. Okay, like, it's kind of like turning on a switch. Okay, like, you can live a certain way here, and then come to God on Sunday. There's a lot of shortcuts out there. And the devil will offer us plenty, plenty, plenty of shortcuts. But like these guys, they refuse that offer, and that's what we should as well. After they refuse this offer, let's see how the enemies of the people of God respond. If their offer was truly sincere and all they wanted to see was the building of the temple go up, then they wouldn't have responded the way they did. Then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Finally, we see the enemy's true colors come out. If they really wanted the temple being built, this would not have been the response. But what we see is that they did everything in their power to stop the work of the temple. And it says there they discouraged the people, to, they tried to make them afraid, they bribed them, they frustrated their plans. They did everything that they could. And actually, did you catch the last like part there? They didn't do it just like for one day or two days or three days. They did it for years. And it was for so long that it lasted beyond one king. So it went from Cyrus, king of Persia, to Darius, king of Persia. They were resilient in their opposition towards the people of God. And they don't just stop there. They actually ramp up their opposition by writing a letter to the current king, okay? And here's the letter. To King Artaxerxes, say that with me. King Artaxerxes. Come on, guys. Artaxerxes. Very good. Leesburg as well. Artaxerxes, okay? That's a great name, okay? There's a lot of great names in the book of Ezra. If you're looking for children names, probably not this guy, but there's a lot of good ones out there, okay? To King Artaxerxes, from your servants in the trans-Euphrates, the king should know 
that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if the city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. We inform the king that if the city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in the trans-Euphrates. You're a new king. You don't know these exile people. You get a letter like this. How do you think you respond? How do you think you respond? You get a letter. What, what are you going to do? So this is the king's response. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that the city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let, why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of the king Artaxerxes was read to Rahum and Shimshai, another great name, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. So right when we ended chapter 3 on a high, now we see things have taken a complete turn of events. Okay, so chapter 3, foundation was built, we rejoiced, the altar of God was there, everything was great. But now we see the opposition. And when the opposition came, it says at the very end, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. And if you're wondering how long the standstill was, 16 years, this work came to a standstill. I don't know about you, but if you've ever felt like this, you've ever felt like you're trying to do something for God and you're trying to pursue God and the enemy, opposition or trials comes back at you. And every time you take one step, enemy comes even harder and harder and harder and harder and, they, and just comes and keeps on going to the point where you kind of feel like you're at a standstill. If you've ever felt like this, you're not alone. The people of God, they felt this today. It feels like the enemy has won. And again, this lasted 16 years. That's a long time. But God is the one who always has the last response. God always is the one who has the last say. So God says, not so fast. And that's where we pick up in chapter 5. And like you guys just said, Haggai and Zechariah enter the picture. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who is over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So after 16 years, opposition looked like it won. God says, I'm going to send two prophets. And when I send those two prophets, they're going to do a great work. They're not going to just be there to be like, it's okay, guys. You know, you really tried. I guess, you know what? It's not a big deal that the temple of God is not built. They said, no. Yes, you had opposition. And you know what? In the beginning, you fought against the opposition. You did good. But then when you were faced with more opposition and you came to a standstill, let's call it what it is, you got comfortable. You didn't try again. What we learn, and you're gonna, if you're in your life groups, you're going to read actually Haggai chapter 1 and, and part of it and, and part of Haggai chapter 2. It's only two chapters. Haggai, the prophet, comes in and says, you got comfortable. When you found out you couldn't build the temple of God, you didn't write back to the king. You didn't try to explain the situation. In fact, you did the opposite. What, what we learn is that they went to their own homes and built like luxurious homes for themselves. And they got comfortable. They settled down in, in their home. And they said, you know what? We're going to build our own home. We can't build the temple of God. That's okay. 
we're going to build our own home. Haggai and Zechariah were there when it says they prophesied to the Jews in, in Judah. They wanted to inspire them, to motivate them, to get them to give back up and rebuild again. If you thought the opposition, like the opposition of God or the enemies of, of the people of God, are relentless, this shows us that God, more relentless. That God doesn't stop pursuing his people. Again, God brought the people out from exile. He's the one who initiated that. And God, again, here, despite the standstill and the people getting comfortable, he's the one who initiates again that God, that he, that he motivates the people to build the temple of God. And the temple wasn't like we sometimes think the temple of God is, is just for God, but really it's for the people. It's for the people's relationship with God. God doesn't need a temple, right? But it's, it's really for the people at the end of the day. After all this, the people wake up and they realize that it's time to build again. And if you notice those two names that, that we just read, Zerubbabel and Joshua, we've been reading about those guys. These are the same people. And they said, yeah, you're right. We did get complacent. We did get comfortable. It's time to get back up. What they realized is just because they lost a battle, one battle, it doesn't mean it's the end of the war. It doesn't mean it's the end. Sometimes we get it stuck in our minds that I tried, I tried, I tried, but I got defeated. I guess it's done. I guess I can't do anything. I'm going to get comfortable. I'm going to get complacent. They said, no, it's not the end. What makes you think that's the end? One moment of failure doesn't mean that you're a failure. One moment where you, like, you lost here, you lost the battle, doesn't mean the war is done. Doesn't mean everything is, is over with. What we're learning is kind of the resilience it takes. And for them, it was like, like physically building the temple of God, but for us, like spiritually building the temple of God, it takes a lot of resilience. There's a Russian saint, uh, a monk, a recent monk, um, who says it this way, St. Silouan the Athenite. He says, do not be cast down over the struggle. The Lord loves a brave warrior. The Lord loves the soul that is valiant. The Lord loves a brave warrior. The Lord loves the soul that is valiant. That is what God wants. If you're asking God, what do you desire? What do you want? Stop thinking that the enemy is stronger than you. Stop thinking that you're defeated. Stop thinking that you're a failure. Stop thinking like you're not my child. Like I'm not the one in control. Like I'm not more powerful than those guys. Stop thinking that. The Lord loves a brave warrior. The Lord loves a soul that is valiant. What we see after this happens, so they had the standstill. The prophets enter the picture. They start rebuilding again. And they're about to be faced with a similar trial to what they were faced before. Okay? Somebody else is going to send a letter to the king and saying, hey, these guys are building the temple. Let's see how the response is a little bit different this time. <clears throat> At the time of Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Boznai and their associates, they went to them and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also asked, what are the names of those who are constructing this building? Why ask for the names? What do you guys think? Be a little bit more interactive today. Well, what do you guys think? Why ask for the names? That's a strange thing. If you're building this temple and a guy you don't know comes and says, hey, who says you guys can build this and what are your names? What do you respond? Oh, what time is it? I got to go, <laughs> right? Like, you don't want to give this guy your name. Like, you think you're going to get in trouble. That's the whole point. Is He's saying, yeah, I'm going to write a letter to the king and you guys better be right. So right now what they are experiencing or they should be experiencing is fear. But the eye of their God 
was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. I love that so much. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews. What's the difference between this time and last time? God was watching over them, right? That's the difference. Like last time, God wasn't watching over them, and this time, God is watching over them, right? Is that the difference? No. They noticed that God was watching over them. That's the difference. The difference wasn't God said, hey, go build the temple, good luck. I'm going to go do some other things here. No, God was watching over them. They just forgot to look up. They didn't notice it. God never changes. This is a good theological lesson. God never changes. We do. God doesn't change. We are the ones who change. The moment they realized that we have God on our side, that God is watching over us, the moment they said, yeah, we need that brave warrior mentality that St. Silwan talked about. That's what we need. In order to get the job done, this is not going to be easy. Nobody promised this was going to be easy, building the temple of God. We're going to be faced with opposition. St. Paul reminds us of this very thing when he says this. <clears throat> if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You ever wonder that? If God is for us, who can be against us? He gave everything to us, including his own son. He didn't spare his own son. What is he going to hide from us? What kind of power is he going to take away from us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That confidence that St. Paul is speaking with right here, that's what we need. If you were to ask me, what does it take to build the temple of God in our lives? Like even when we feel defeated, when we feel like the enemy has won, what do we need? That's what we need. We need that kind of confidence. The difference this time around versus last time around wasn't that God was watching over them. The difference was that they noticed it. That they said, we have God on our side. They woke up. Said in another way, our confidence in God's love will ultimately determine the strength of our resilience. Our confidence in God's love and protection will determine the strength of our resilience. God is always watching over us too. Even when it doesn't feel like it. He's watching over us. And when we notice it, and when we see it, and when we believe it, we can run through that wall for God. But the moments that I'm stuck down here, and I'm not looking up, I'm focused on my problems, that's where I lose all my confidence in God, and my faith is lacking, and I become weaker. <clears throat> like I said last time, they came, this happened, a letter went out to the king, they came to a standstill. This time around, noticing that God was watching over them, they had a response, and they included their response into the, the letter that was sent to the king, and they said this, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our ancestors anchor, angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. 
However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. You already see the shift of tone, right? Before, a letter is sent out. It comes to a standstill. No response. Quiet. 16 years. This time around, they said, you know what? No, we can also have a response to the king because we have the real king on our side. This guy is here today, gone tomorrow. We've seen many kings pass by. And they don't even really try to persuade him. They just said, you know what? We're so confident that God is on our side. Just search the records. We're sure what we're telling you is true. We're doing what is right in front of God. Just search the records and we'll see what happens. The king does search the archives and obviously he does find that what they said is true. And here's his decision. Their expenses are to be fully paid out out of the royal treasury from the revenues of the trans-Euphrates so that the work, will not be, the, the work will not stop. Whatever is needed as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. This is a crazy turn of events. So not only are they allowed to build the temple, but they're getting everything paid for, including the sacrifices, which by definition, they're no longer really sacrifices. Like the sacrifices are being offered from the king, given to the people. Okay, you can go ahead and use these sacrifices. We see clearly the blessing of God in their lives. That what, we, what they would even call sacrifices weren't real sacrifices. That God even provided those sacrifices. Kind of like, you know, uh, Abraham and Isaac. Like, they, God provides the, the actual sacrifice. And that's what happened here today. And at the very end, he has one request. The king has one request. Hey, just pray for me and my family. The king, that's his one request. This is a crazy turn of events. We're back to Cyrus, king of Persia, miracle. Like, this doesn't make any sense. The blessing of God is so evident when we follow the ways of God. Not because God is going to give us like, you know, necessarily like those material things, but the blessing of God is just so like abundant when we're following his ways. Let's continue and see what happens. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. Again, a lot of name options there. Kings of Persia. The temple was completed. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. What we're seeing in this book of Ezra is not just like um, one story, people start in exile, and everything kind of goes smoothly along the way. We see a lot of ups and downs. And I bet we can kind of all relate. In our spiritual lives with God, in our, in our relationship with God, we can relate. There's a lot of ups and downs. Things aren't always smooth. But we ultimately see what a life with God really looks like. And today we're kind of getting that like the complete picture. And after today, really, the book of Ezra takes kind of another shift. Okay, But just as we're ending today, what we see is that the temple is completed. Everything that the people of God had worked for that entire time finally has come to fruition today. When we accept the calling that St. Silliman calls like being that brave warriors for God, 
and we trust that God will complete his work, that's when we're filled with joy, as it, as it says in that end of that passage. There's a famous verse that I love so much in, in uh, St. Paul's epistle uh, to Philippi, and he says the following. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you ever struggle with the ups and downs in life in general, this is a great verse to come back to. Because it's a reminder that God doesn't leave anything unfinished. God never leaves anything unfinished. No project, and we're all kind of like a work in progress, so to speak, or projects. No project is ever unfinished when it comes to God. If we want a project finished, we go to the author and, and, and finisher of, of life, the one who, who's, who's in control of time, the one who's in control of everything in this world. Our God isn't in the business of leaving any work unfinished. He who has begun a good work in you and me will complete it. Question for us is do we have the confidence along the way to know this and believe this? When opposition comes, because it will come, when compromises are put in front of us, because they will be, do we try to get through them or do we just come to a standstill and get comfortable? <clears throat> if you wanted to see the difference between the people who actually have returned home. And remember, in the first week I told you, not everyone returned home. A lot of people actually remained in exile in per in, under the, the Cyrus king of Persia at the time. The difference between the two was that people got comfortable. Their lives had become to a standstill, like these people today, and they said, we're going to just stay here, we're comfortable. But today we see that God will give us every opportunity not to get comfortable. God will send prophets, like we say in the liturgy, right? Like we say, you have not abandoned us to the end, but you have visited us with your prophets, and in the last days with Jesus Christ, you have manifested yourself to us, right? God never leaves us on our own trying to figure this thing out. God will always provide us opportunities, but it's up to us. Do we want to remain in a standstill in comfort, or do we want to step up like these guys did today? Let's stand up for prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you so much for your abundant love, your blessing, always pursuing us, always chasing after us over and over again. Thank you, Lord, for your care and compassion and love for us. We thank you for your authority and power and how glorious you are, Lord. We thank you for always desiring to, to finish a work in us, to complete that work that you have begun. We know that you are the one who initiates everything, and we're so thankful for that. Allow us, Lord, to respond accordingly, to respond with confidence, to respond in a way that, that truly makes you proud like, like the brave warriors you call us to be. We ask you, Lord, that this time in the, in the book of Ezra and, and everyone would, when they're going through the well uh, here together and, and in their life groups that you are truly inspiring all of us to live that life for you. You're inspiring us in a way and challenging us in ways that maybe we haven't thought of before, Lord. We ask you, Lord, that anyone that is on our minds today that, that is in need of, of this message of, of your love and compassion and, and the desire to, to be connected with you, that is on our minds, Lord, that, that you hear our prayers for every single person, Lord, that has asked us to pray for them. We ask you, Lord, that you hear our prayers through intercessions of your Holy Mother of God, the Theotokos, St. Mary, St. Timothy, and St. Athanasius. Here says, we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all 